Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada, episode 217. Oh boy, where does the time go? We are here, actually, I am here. This is a solo today, but I've got two wonderful guests. Uh, we have Isaac, who is a tenant organizer uh, from Brooklyn and a writer for Cosmonaut Magazine and one of the illustrious rank and file members of the Marxist Unity Group. We also have Aaliyah, who is also a rank and filer in MUG, a DSA organizer or starting a DSA organizing committee in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and an editor at Cosmonaut Magazine. Thank you both of you for uh, being with me today. Thanks for having us. I'm a big fan um, of the podcast and excited to be on it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, stoked to be here. Thank you. Well, much thanks to you for coming on the show. Uh, on the Antifada, I regret to say, or maybe this is an editorial choice or just how things shook out, but we don't usually have people on who are outside of our little milieu, whatever that milieu is. It's like councilists, communizers, left comms, post trots. Uh, anarchists, communists, whatever. Like uh, we usually kind of have friends on who are vaguely within that. Uh, but you guys are here as um, Republicans, which is impressive. And I hope to we can have a uh, fruitful back and forth here. And then before people get a little wigged out, of course, I'm talking about small R Republicanism. And we'll tease out through the course of this episode what your theories are and what practice follows from uh, your particular program, your particular line on how socialism and or communism uh, is possible. The reason I wanted to have you on is that I myself have been grappling with uh, for a year or so now, quietly, but also on the podcast, uh, with what manner of communist podca- uh, politics uh, might have a broad appeal and mass reach in the 20th century uh, in America. Um, the various types of Stalinism, Maoism, Trotskyism, and anarchism, and whatever that you see, mostly online, but also offline as well, don't really seem up to the task uh, in general, but particularly not in the United States, which has, of course, a unique political economy. It's got the centrality of its capitalist empire. Uh, and of course, too, and importantly for this episode, the United States or the Anglo-American world in general has a strong and long uh, small d democratic political tradition, uh, which doesn't exactly jive well with, say, Stalinism. <laughs> uh, moreover, too, I feel as though for myself and maybe for some of the listeners, um, I've kind of gotten an answer to a lot of the questions I've had over the years and decades uh, about how capitalism works and how it maintains itself. You know, these are issues and problems that we're still working through on this podcast. I'm still working through, but I feel as though like years of deep study have kind of equipped us to understand what capital is, how it functions and how it maintains itself. But now I feel like maybe, and this is a reflection, I think of like so many recent problems and contradictions and failures, uh, that, that we've all had here in the United States, like, what uh how do we bring these lessons uh these very these lessons that exist on this very high plane of abstraction you know where marx settled um and where subsequent marxists of course have worked to try to understand the the workings of capital how do we bring that down to earth how do we grapple with the slow patient work that it takes to build a workers movement in actual concrete uh contemporary conditions so i thought it'd be great to bring you two on 
to help answer, uh, give a, hopefully a broad answer uh, within this sort of problematic here. Uh, and your answer to that is, I, and I, by your, I should say, uh, Mug's answer to that is a recommitment to something that it seems like has largely receded over the course of the 20th and the 21st century, which is Marx and subsequent Marxists' uh, republicanism. Right, this sense that there is like um, something fruitful in the Enlightenment, in the Republican tradition of self-governance and democracy that grows over into the workers' movement, that grows over into socialism, uh, that the Democratic Republic, uh, as Marx argues after 1871, is sort of the form uh, that that socialism takes. So, with all that preamble out of the way, uh, Isaac and Aliyah, feel free either of you to jump in on any of these, of course. Tell us a bit about the history of the Marxist Unity Group. Uh, how did you form and for what purpose? Absolutely. Yeah. So first off, I'd like to say that we consider ourselves radical Republicans. Um, okay. I think All that's right. an important distinction, one that, you know, we like to we like to uphold. Free soil, um, free men, free labor. That kind yeah. of radical Republicanism. Yeah. So um, Mug came out of the Cosmonaut Project originally, which um, any readers know is oriented towards scientific socialism and a vision for, you know, a new socialist party, a party of a new type. And it was kind of inspired by um, Chartism, especially. Mm. Now we see in America and globally so many groups um, ultimately that end up just kind of falling to endless splitting, sectarianism, breaking up through drama. And a lot of these groups are really kind of dogmatically oriented around, um, you know, a sense of like purism or adherence to one particular theorist. Mm -hmm. And when that there are theoretical breaks, breaks in ideology, it creates all this infighting that ultimately makes working together really impossible. So I think, you know, a few cosmonaut members saw that they decided to join DSA and make an intervention at one of the conventions. All right. Um, before we go on with that, and maybe this is a good way to start getting into the history, and maybe Isaac, you could pick up this thread. Talk a little bit for the people who don't know, uh, what was Chartism in the UK and, and how do you relate to that history? Yeah, I mean, Chartism was like the um, one of the first um, like working class political parties, essentially, or political movements. Um, it really expressed itself in terms of like uh, this big um, uh, list of demands. I think there are like around 10 demands called the People's Charter. It was first stuff that I, I think is kind of um, commonplace nowadays, but uh, things like um, a secret ballot. Um, I think one, one of the big demands was uh, making the wages of uh, members of parliament um, something that like working class people could, making it a wage job, I think in general, because it was just this place for like rich people. Um, but at, at the, I mean, more importantly at the time it was like, there was no way you could really do politics um, as a working class person. It wasn't really like, you know, I mean, I'm going to say it was something like out of all the adult male population, male, you know, being important there and, and maybe a issue with chartism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, there. There's about, I think, like one percent um, 
uh, actually like voted in elections. Um, you know, it was like the, under there's this uh, set of rules called the poor laws um, that were really oppressive and essentially made like um, working class life into this giant prison. Um, and it was uh, this, you know, political movement that was coming around at the time of like utopianism um, had kind of been around. There was Robert Owen, Fourier, some listeners might be familiar with, um, which were kind of like, well, you know, rich guys with ideas, you know, setting up, setting up towns where everyone would wear like weird clothes together. <laughs> right. Stuff Create like, labor phalanxes and whatnot. Yeah. Turn the season to lemonade. Um, <laughs> but like Chartism was really like much more of like a, like, you know, working class movement. It had these things like that, you know, started um, and grew out of it and extended to a lot of like working class movements in the, um, in the 19th century, um, they had, you know, a list of demands. They had like a kind of political organizing strategy that relied on like getting a lot of people to support something and doing it openly. Um, there are a lot of debates just like in the first international around like, um, I forget the words they use in terrorism, but essentially like kind of like violent terrorism versus uh, a kind of more like political, quote unquote, political version. Uh, they had working class institutions. They're like Chartist schools, Chartist like um, essentially like clubs. Um, it's probably the best way to frame it. Um, I think like a lot of utopian movements, they had, you know, they were kind of like still utopian movement. I should say like one of the ways Chartism ended was that they set up farms uh, like everyone mm -hmm. seemed to do at the time where like that that all failed uh, for the most part. I think one of them lasted until like the 1920s and, and they grew strawberries there but for the most part it was this like kind of emergence of like the working class like as thinking of themselves as like a political unit right it, really big it, for Marx. yeah it was it was in the 1830s and 1840s in great britain is that right so it, it's it, it has its analog in the united states in the in the 18 teens and 1820s and 1830s uh, with the birth of the American working men's parties, of course, as you said, men, because this is uh, a product of its time. Um, but it is about the fulfillment of the promise of uh, the bourgeois revolutions, the fulfillment of the promises of uh, liberal democracy being realized for not just the burghers, not just for the uh, aristos, not just for the landowners, of course, but for everybody. So this is kind of the marker of where you understand your movement and the intervention that you made too is that you envision this as as trying to realize in a in a in a higher form the promises of those late 18th and 19th century revolutions is that right uh, i frame it more along the lines of like it, it's just it was really important for marx in, in thinking about mm -hmm. this of thinking about how does the working class have like a political or organizational form what is like how do how do we do politics that was a really important thing of Marx's thought, right? At the time that he was writing, in like 1840s, political parties were like clubs. I mean, they they literally had clubs where you would hang out, right? The Jacobin Club, places like that. Uh, they were kind of these like small conspiratorial like groups, and they didn't they just weren't like the parties uh, that we 
think of when we think of like socialist parties. Um, and Marx saw the Chartists and was kind of trying to learn from that, just like he saw the Paris Commune trying to learn from it and saw working class like movement in general. Um, I think it's what Kwame Torre had the quote, like um, he didn't invent, Marx didn't invent communism. He just described it, mm. something like that. Um, and I think it's, I think the point about Chartism is that it's really important to think about like the organizational and like forms that working class politics takes. And that was really important for Marx. And I think it's important to this day um, I would say in terms of like political inspiration, for me at least, like we talk about movements that are happening in the U.S. at time and, and I think Atlantically, let's say, like the abolitionist movement is incredibly important and hmm. um, I think really influential, at least certainly for my politics. And I think for the politics of a lot of like radicals at the time, it was definitely influential for Marx. Marx in, I think, uh, in, when John Brown's uh, raid happened, Marx said, in a letter, I think something along the lines of like, this is the most important thing happening in the world right now. Mm. Again, making real the promises of, uh, of, of bourgeois liberty. Uh, as I understand, uh, Mug, uh, Mike McNair, who is a theorist in the Communist Party of Great Britain, is a big influence on your group. Is that right? Uh, maybe describe uh, who he is and what you find val valuable about Mike McNair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, even if we want to just go into our reader, you know, um, that we give to all of our applicants, um, it contains um, material from Mike McNair. His book, uh, Revolutionary Strategy, is, you know, really, really influential to us, you know, and how we see our strategic alignment. Um, we include his essay, Control the Bureaucrats, as well as his academic work on the Erfurt program. And I think the Erfurt program is, you know, really especially important to us. Um, you know, we, our orientation is that of a minimum maximum program, mm. which we think really, you know, is not something you necessarily hear talked about in a lot of Marxist circles. Um, we think it delineates us from like a Trotskyist kind of reformist perspective, but it also gets us away from that kind of like, I don't know, purism that kind of always appeals to this like violent upheaval that's going to like magically bring us communism, you mm. know, um, <laughs> I guess in the words of our beloved Donald Parkinson, you know, <laughs> without a party, we have nothing. Mm. So we advocate for, you know, we have our minimum program. Um, that is meant to like advance democracy, build the fighting power of the working class, help them organize themselves into like an effective mass party, you know, that has real political power and that kind of pushes the limits of achievability within the confines of the existing state. You know, we see a lot of problems with these groups being ineffective because they don't want to work with the current conditions. Mm. And, you know, that's really important to being a Marxist, looking at our current conditions. What can we actually achieve? So, you know, it's not about making concessions, but it's just about, you know, wanting to be really effective um, and just, you know, continue pushing forward. So if the. I'm sorry to interrupt. If the if the minimal program then is about deepening democratic reforms in order, presumably to allow the working class to be a class for itself, uh, broadly and and in a mass form in the political sphere, then your maximum program is still revolution or it's working class power. What's the maximal part? Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, I'd say that's that's kind of a fair understanding. Um, the Maximum Program is a vision for communism. Mm. It continuously like grounds us. It you know keeps us always moving toward that goal. I think it's how we keep from settling into kind of a reformist orientation. I don't think any of us are under the illusion that we can just reform our way to communism. <laughs> None of us think that. Um, so you know, it's a positive vision for the future. Um, you know, and a real concrete strategy on how to win that future through proletarian political struggle. Um, it, you know, insists on the necessity of communism. It hedges against the subsumption of ends to means, mm. you know, and it kind of just, it's it's our ultimate aims that hold us accountable, essentially. Yeah, I might be like, so I think some people might know programs from like, you know, Trotskyism's transitional program. Um, And I think even if you're not a Trotskyist, uh, a lot of people still act in in that way of like, they will still kind of think of like when we're making demands, you know, it's what we're going to do something and then people are going to get into it. And then the uh, liberal leaders of the coalition will like fail in some way and the socialists will like, be like, look, we proved we're the best organizers, something, and then people will just become socialists or something. But I, I think in the in this program, uh, the minimum maximum program, the idea is the minimum is the like minimum necessary for workers to really take power in the country for something like a dictatorship of the proletariat to take place or workers' republic. Um, and the maximum is like stated and clear. Um, it's a it's like a story. I think of organizing as just storytelling, right? And it's really important. Like if you look at the uh, Communist Manifesto, for example, right, it starts with like a kind of general description of like how we got here, uh, the like how we came to this point in time. Then it describes, you know, what being in 1848 is like, describes the present, and then it has a vision for the future um, and how you get there. Like it says pretty clearly, like communists are going to do a certain set of things. This political party um, that we're setting up, the the Communist League, is going to do some things. And we have this strategy on how to get to this better future. So it's a past, present, future story. It's just a story. And that's how we think of it is like we're telling like a continuous story. Um, A lot of times it's easy to fall into these traps of like, um, you know, we can get into like the popular front later. Right. But like, you know, in 1937, the Communist Party, like of the U.S. for all of its many faults at the time, was putting out a program that was like towards the Soviet America, where mm-hmm. it had some vision for transformation, right? And then as soon as the Popular Front started, they really, they just didn't put it out anymore. There's actually the, I think like the John Birchers or someone reprinted the book in the 1950s with like the title, like the book, the secret book the communists don't <laughs> want you to read with this idea that it was their secret plot. But really right. it was just, they had just stopped talking about that. They didn't talk about the future anymore. Um, and your publication, Cosmonaut, has some good distinctions uh, between your program and like the Earl Browder 1930s vision of uh, Bill of Rights socialism, for example, or uh, communism is 21st century Americanism. I mean, maybe maybe you believe that. But the point is, is that ju- the kind of stale um, popular front uh, CPUSA shit, you also reject that as well. I, I think one label you don't reject might be neo Kautz. What's I, I hear a lot of uh, a lot of uh, the return of uh, Karl Kautsky, who if anybody who's been around commie circles and knows, because I think probably most people are Leninists in some way, shape or form. 
um, out there. Um, you know, famously, Lenin denounces uh, Karl Kautsky, but there's something about the Kautskyan legacy that you uphold. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I think this ties back into the McNair question, too, you know, because, you know, for us, McNair was kind of just reintroducing, you know, the best that Kotsky had to offer, you know, um, democratic republicanism, mass partyism, sorry, stuttering. And then um, the strategy of patience, you know, mm. is really, really key. You know, we don't think there is a shortcut to socialism, you know, so we're trying to, you know, figure out how we can, you know, build it. Um, and people do call us neocots. Um, we think that's kind of funny. Um, we feel like that's not really a label that we take on ourselves, <laughs> honestly. Um, it's a slur. You could just call it what it is. It's, it's a bit a of a slur. slur. Um, we definitely work with Kotsky, but, um, you know, Lenin was right to call him a renegade. He okay. was. Um, right. So we're kind of working with, uh, you know, his views and his politics, you know, before his renegade turn. Right. He, he ultimately even, you know, denounced the Democratic Republic. You know, mm. Lenin was right to call him out for what he was. Um, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We think there's a lot there that is necessary and crucial um, for our work today. Um, and we're willing to work with that. You know, Lenin said that he was right. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have a lot to learn from Kotsky. So, yeah. How yeah, very supple of you. How very non-dogmatic of you. I, I, I appreciate that. That's a breath of fresh air. Go ahead, Isaac. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there's a way a lot of people, especially maybe like Marxist-Leninists, internet Marxist-Leninists even, would uh, like learn about the history of socialism or Marxism of this kind of like, you know, ever increasing progress where like Lenin kind of uh, – um, came up with like what is to be done and that like advanced socialism and then supersede Stal it really right? Stalin supersedes something yeah. Mao supersedes something maybe chairman Gonzalo right supersedes something and whoever the next sec leader supersedes something uh, I think one of the points when we talk about Kautsky is just to like frame what is to be done in its time and frame it not as like you know it he was like just reflecting I think um, a much broader consensus among um, like the second international than it's usually thought it wasn't, it isn't this mass, it's a great work, but it's not this epistemical break. Um, and I think that allows you to have a vision of like the, like history of communism where you're, you're not learning like, okay, someone superseded someone, superseded someone, uh, declared all the past before that obsolete. You know, I think it's a much better way of just thinking, even if we're thinking of it as like a science, right? I mean, that's, science doesn't work. Like that's how science works. I think in many ways there's convergent evolution, there's convergent discoveries. Um, so I think it's really trying to, it's, it's a way to reorient ourselves to the past in a non, in a non dogmatic, uh, uh, way. And I think Kotsky is like really key to that because he's this whole idea of like this kind of supersession, supersession, I think is really tied in with these, um, with the absolutely correct uh, denunciations of Kotsky. The, the supersession argument isn't, uh, I think merely if I can steel man the argument, right. It's, it's that there are like successive phases in capitalist development. And so it's Lenin, Lenin discovers this superseding factor beyond say the second international or German social democracy because capitalism has entered its monopoly stage and he's able to identify that. And then again, steel manning, he's able to come up with the theory and the practice necessary to confront that and overcome that. So how do you, with your group, try to, um, try to keep, uh, your theory fresh to like contemporary reality? Do you believe, 
uh, in periodization? What do you think this is a huge question, but what do you think is like different now than was in the time of Lenin and the, and the, and the time of Kautsky? Uh, we can, it's pretty easy to identify this strain that you're talking about of, of radical republicanism going through, but how do you argue that that is still relevant now in the 21st century, especially as, um, bourgeois democracy is in a serious recession around the entire world, uh, not just in the United States. And capital, you could argue, of course, is decadent as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of periodization, um, I don't really know a great way to periodize, I would say. I always like, like when it comes to periods, I, I always think of like um, 1973 to 1985 as a really important period Um because it's you know from from uh, oil embargo to to uh, miner strike and I think there's I think there's a story you can tell there that's the one and it's usually how I've periodized my music taste too because that's when all the best music came out <laughs> right. um, in the midst of crisis yeah in the midst of crisis yeah I mean and and you know I read a lot of DC comics as a kid so I'm no stranger to like calling every five years a new crisis but you know I I think like it really comes down to like kind of studying from the like current conditions. I mean, like the do what Lenin did, right? When he wrote imperialism, and I think there's a lot of good things in that book. There's a lot of things that I think are a little out of date now. He was just going to the library in, in um, like Bern, uh, Switzerland, and, you know, looking through the text, looking through what's happening then. And I think like, I think the tendency to like over periodize does lead to this way of kind of like blocking off, um, I think maybe artificially blocking off certain like developments. Um, if I had to pick a text like that, you know, I mean, just to your point about Lenin, if I had to pick a text that was really like the kind of breaking point, like, you know, imperialism and the split of socialism in 1916, I mean, that's, that's a really important text, right? I think there's a, like, there's just ways in which like the periodization becomes like, you know, then gets taken all the way back to 1905 or what is to be done in a way that's not the same kind of split as like, you know, in 1916 when he's writing about that. And then you, but then you have to explain like, well, well, why is it important? Like, how is he coming, deciding like this, um, the, the effects of imperialism have, have led to this kind of like, um, dominance of, of the labor movement or have led to like this creation of labor aristocracy. And, you know, I think, I think these artificial barriers like lead to these things of like, well, he had already been thinking about this in 1905 or he had already split it. They had already split in 1911 or something like, and I think that's, it's just leads to this kind of unscientific view of, of developments. I, I guess maybe another way to frame the question and, and get it away from Lenin particularly would be like, you talk of chartism and you talk about the influence of that on Marx and you talk about broadly, I think, and importantly, the 19th century struggle for the realization of democracy, not just political democracy, of course, but industrial democracy as well. So you have that entire canon and you have that whole body of practice through the 19th century. I guess the question is then, like while that can inform things, you know, the battle for democracy, quote unquote, seems to be, and I think you would argue against this, seems to have been won. So an argument in calling forth the forces of the masses again to stand up and um, uh, recommit themselves to, say, like American democracy uh, can seem anachronistic in a period where um, it feels as though those battles have been won for most people and it feels as though democracy writ large has failed. So I wonder if there's a tension there or, or how would you address that particular historical 
attention, like the things that uh, were active in the 19th century aren't necessarily in the 21st? Yeah, I mean, I think point blank, we would definitely say that no, the battle for democracy is not won because, you know, we don't really have real democracy. And I think that think that talking to you know almost any working class people they would agree they don't mm. feel that they have access to real democratic process they don't feel like their vote counts anything that any sort of any legislation any project that is you know kind of meant to guarantee people's rights or give them more autonomy even if it makes it all the way through the congress and the presidency it ultimately can get shut down through the supreme court like we do not have democracy um, not for the majority of people in the world. So I just think the, it's the wrong question, yeah, I mean, you know? And like, you know, I mean, like, I think by any like just basic even bourgeois standard of democracy, like, you know, you might like, I think a bourgeois political scientist could could say something along the lines of like, we only got one in, in 1965. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I, I don't think it like the the, the you know, the fights in the 1800s in, in democracy in the U.S., I think like there is this, you know, I mean, it was maybe maybe you could call it Jacksonianism or something. But what that was, was not, you know, democratic uh, in, in in any way I'd call it democratic. You know, it was, you know, I mean, what was a big part of like um, 1800s democracy in the U.S., like mass violence, um, lynchings, um, like this kind poll of taxes. Uh, poll, yeah, poll taxes. Yeah. I mean. You know, just like this is not I think this is a vision of of democracy that that absolutely, you know, was not a democracy for the vast majority of working of working people in the U.S. And one of the things I think that that brought the three of us together is that last year I was just like fucking around and I was thinking about all the constitution humping that happens in the united states and how the constitution of this country for both the right and what passes for the left in this country not just progressives but often leftists who have a very have a very sort of rights-based conception of of what's possible i said that uh america it's easier for americans to imagine the end of the world than an end of the to the constitution and i see and i read uh, a great article you have uh in cosmonaut which is uh fight the constitution demand a new republic which i think is a very uh, courageous and an apposite thing these days because to question the constitution to to question question the actual form that democracy takes in the united states is to pose the question of what would a true democracy look like and also say that a true democracy a deepening of people's political engagement and self-governance and ability to run their lives not just in politics but obviously of course that would pertain to the economy as well has to go through the path of uh overcoming and tearing up this radically undemocratic uh, document that we have today, the fruits of which we see everywhere, which, as you said quite rightly, is a working class in this country that doesn't even believe that it has a voice because it doesn't. So I think that that's an important distinction, maybe, between what your political program uh, and your platform is versus just a simple like get more voting rights within the particular you know federal system that we have right now. Well, and I think key too is like you know, democracy requires transparency. 
And I think this bend toward really, really paranoid and conspiratorial thinking is pretty easily understood through this lens. People know that, you know, they're being lied to. They're not getting good information. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even if they did feel like their vote counted and they could be integrated into the political system in a meaningful way, you know, I think a lot of people would just kind of shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes because they don't feel like they know what's going on anyway. Um, and, you know, that's why we feel like, you know, this state just needs to be like entirely restructured. You know, these are problems that we just cannot fix, you know, within the way that this state is structured, you know, and that's why we go back to the Constitution. And, you know, and our, if I could interrupt, uh, Aaliyah, what you're saying is not an outro thing to say, of course, on the communist or socialist left, right? It's just that the mechanism for achieving that is often something more oblique or something more uh, revolutionary uh, than the construction of a new, uh, a new and deeper constitutional order. Um, this, I think, it's an interesting thing, right? Because what you're not arguing against revolution, but you're arguing no, uh, against the form, the the sort of dogmatic form that you feel as though a lot of people think it'll take. Absolutely, no. We are we we are revolutionary. <laughs> like we want revolution. It's absolutely necessary. Um, but we're trying to think about how we can concretely achieve that. Um, you know, like even beyond like a mass armed struggle in the streets or whatever, like, you know, we need a political revolution, you know? Um, so we're trying to think about how, how we can achieve that, you know? Um, and again, you know, there are no shortcuts to socialism. So we're trying to think about like, what are all the steps? How can we build, you know, like a lot of, you know, revolutionary activity, I think, um, it doesn't end up carrying through, you know, because of, you know, state concerns. And I think that, you know, well, uh, here's a good example. A lot of people look to, you know, the coup that happened at the White House, right? So this mm. was this insurrectionary activity. They came in, you know, they took it over. But what happened? Literally nothing. Because, you know, the structure of the state wasn't addressed in any sense, you know. Mm. It was it was an event. But But then what? Nothing. It wasn't even, it's not even that it wasn't addressed, it wasn't posed. Right. Yeah. The question no, of January sixth wasn't whether we would have presidents or not. It was whether the correct person won, you know, by within the system that we have. Isaac, I cut you off previously. I'm sorry, go ahead with what you were saying. Uh yeah, no, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite moment from from that was the person who like came into the Senate and I he, I think he was like looking through uh Ted Cruz's notes and it was something he was I think the New Yorker recorded him saying something along the lines of like, oh, we, we got to find some dirt here. Like we, he was going to screw us the whole time. There was, I, I think they were just like so caught up in like, I don't know, action hero like style of idea of like how power works. I think they were thinking they're going to find like the cheat codes in there or something. I mean, it's just an absolute delusional mess. I, you know, I, like the. I was going to say, like, the Constitution, I think it's been this great tool for, like, recuperating struggle. It's been re recuperating into a new order. Um, it's a way in which, like, you know, is able to kind of, like, I mean, it's, I, what, isn't it the, it's the world's uh, oldest Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And Constitutions, like, they last, like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And had one and like it's been able to kind of recuperate and have been a way that, um, you know, these kind of, like, uh, big popular uprisings in American history, like the Reconstruction era, the 
civil rights or second reconstruction been able to be like kind of brought back in and also how reactionary movements have been able to kind of slowly chip away the gains of those eras have usually been through kind of like um been through the Supreme court been through like re-enter like been through these kind of things in the constitutional order so i think it's a really important thing to call it directly and come out against um and you know there's a big key of like the of the abolitionist movement of of um, other movements in real radical movements was like going up against the constitution. Garrison burned the constitution in public meetings that, you know, it was a real big part of like American of radical political critique of, uh, was this kind of anti-constitutionalism was anti, you know, uh, the abolitionists would said like, Hey, if there's going to be a war against, if, if there's another Mexican American war, there's one abolitionist like sign me up on Mexico side, you know, like yeah. it's this real, that was a real powerful critique. And I think a real way also to kind of avoid this uh, recuperation that happens after any kind of popular upsurge is, you know, keep the eyes on the prize here. Yeah. In that fight, the constitution article in Cosmonaut, uh, they mentioned something that I didn't know, which is John Brown proposes, uh, his own constitution on the eve of the civil war. Uh, this idea of like a refounding can look like January 6th, which kind of reconstitutes this old undemocratic order. Or as you guys point out, it could also be the birth of something new. I want to get into um, like a broader question here, maybe, because I know there's a lot of listeners out there and I actually feel it. Uh, I feel it too. Part of me feels it. Um, This um, people's. Okay, let me let me pose the question like this. All right. Uh, A lot of left historical revisionism has happened in the United States over the last few decades. And I'm thinking here specifically of people that I heard speak a lot back in the 1990s and 2000s, people like Eric Foner uh, or people like well within this older sort of old old left and new left tradition. Um, This there's been a revision recently questioning the whole idea uh, that there was something historically progressive about, say, the Declaration of Independence or even the Republican uh, side uh, of the Civil War. Many now see um, and I think for for some good reasons, see the American experiment as simply a cynical ploy by slave owners or by capitalists to dupe us into upholding our own oppression. So, A, why do you think this revision has happened? Uh, and B, what is there to salvage within Americanism, right? Within Americanism? Within the, within the American uh, experiment, I guess people call it, right? Maybe not Americanism, because that sounds native. Yeah, there's nothing within Americanism. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, American nationalism just can go in the garbage can and burn. Um, That's good. Let's put a pin in that, because we'll have to talk about internationalism at some point, too. But okay. go on. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can take this. You know, like internationalism, I think, is a great, actually, a great point in terms of like the historical revisionism. Uh, I think Hazel Carby, right, has a great, uh, was a great writer, has a great critique of um, of Isabel Wilkerson's uh, book on caste. Also, the sixteen nineteen project that you know points out, like, like, look, when we're talking about this history, we have to consider it as this kind of cross Atlantic history. Um, the, the, uh, um, what's that book, The Common Wind or The Many Handy Hydra are great examples of this work that I think is really, really important for communists in the U.S. to understand, um, to, you know, kind of move out of that methodological nationalism uh, that I think really is an artifact of like popular front history. Um, like the, 
um, amazing revolution in, in Haiti led to a period of coastal revolt across the coastline of the continent in, uh, and in the Caribbean, but including like the um, uh, Denmark Vesey's rebellion in 18, 1820 or so in Charleston directly connected. And there's part of this, I think, clearly part of this wave, uh, you know, and, and that's in the like source material of like how they were talking about this event was and how um, Southerners, the white supremacist class in the South was fearing these events was only being talked about through the Haitian rebellion. It was either like uh, it was a it was a historiographical battle was happening in, in some ways over uh, interpretations of the Haitian rebellion. There was that book yeah. by Susan Buck Morris a few years ago called Hegel and Haiti, where she argues that Hegel's uh, master-slave dialectic comes with his encounter of readings of the of the Haitian Revolution and trying to understand what that means in light of his Hegelian theories of uh, freedom. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an, I think that encounter is, is really important for understanding American history. Understanding like this, um, you know, uh, so there's, that data is really, really important. Another important thing is like seeing it you know, not again, a popular front kind of backlog is this idea of like a kind of like continuous red thread of of like, you know, progress of socialists are kind of pushing, pushing, pushing the country further towards progress. I don't think that's a good way to see it at all. Right. I think it is really important to like think back to, um, you know, the historiography being produced by the abolitionist movement in the uh, after the Civil War, right, when they're starting to write down their memoirs, starting to write down all their thoughts on history as they see the lost cause historiography beginning, they're kind of leaving behind this counter archive, I think, in many, you know, and, and I mean, you can see these books picked up, Malcolm X picked up musty abolitionist books kind of rotting away in the Massachusetts library, in the Massachusetts prison library. It was a big part of his political development. So it's, I think, more of this, like seeing it more as like a counter archive, seeing it as this kind of um, uh, cross-Atlantic counter archive um, of, of history. I think that was something being intentionally created uh, by these revolutionary movements. And I think that's the the, the successful historians, I think, of these times of of this like revisionist wave, as you say, which I think is incredibly important for all communists to be understanding and reading. What what, it, what does it mean that there's been a, a a revision of the revision, and now there's uh, very much it seems like, and this is a combination of uh, third worldism, it seems like, and a combination a combination of postmodernism and subaltern studies and a sort of kind of anarchism where say the vision that Marx and Engels and people of the 19th century had whereby the bourgeois revolution and of course capitalism uh, arising is of course it's a one-sided freedom that's posed uh, it is an insufficient freedom but it is that precondition the American Revolution, War for Independence, the Declaration of Independence, is the precondition for the eventual achievement of a deeper, more uh, substantive democracy called socialism. What does it mean that that's been lost? You know, what is is that a, just a political fight that the the mugs of the world have to fight out with uh, with with the, the progressives and the and the radical liberals? What, what is that, and how do you counter it? We could talk about how it was lost in, in 1787, the Constitution, right? Like, I mean, there was, I think it was a contested period. There's mm. absolutely, um, you know, I don't know, like the Philadelphia, the uh, Pennsylvania Constitution that comes out. And I think this is in Zinn's book, right? It is this like really radical document where you have like yearly elections. You have a kind of like directly, uh, I think, a unicameral legislator, you know, something that was like really key to like how a lot of 
Jacobins at the time were thinking of radical democracy, but it's clearly defeated in, in the Constitution, which is this clearly like anti-democratic document. Mm. Um, it's clearly defeated in the kind of um, uh, um, compromise with slavery. Um, it's clearly defeated in how this country was being like, you know, um, was grown on the basis of uh, of, of um, King Cotton. Um, I think it's like important, like, but but seeing it as a contested period is probably how I'd, how I'd put it. Um, and seeing like, not this kind of like, I think there's a kind of like, I don't know, I think Republicanism is really, you know, thinking about these times in terms of like, um, you know, uh, uh, cross Atlantic popular movements. Mm. Uh, I think that's a better way of like phrasing it than this kind of. I think it, it breaks away from the like methodological nationalism of of past um, attempts to talk about like the kind of progressive wing of American history. Do you have anything to add, Aaliyah? Yeah, I think ultimately, um, you know, you you bring together like these subaltern movements, anarchism, you know, postmodernism, the post left. I think all of it is just this disillusionment with democracy as a communist value. And I kind of mm. think it's just rooted in that, you know, like like that that's like a false flag. It's you know, it's not it's not real freedom. Um and yeah, I think that it's just very misinformed and I think it you know, guides people in the wrong direction. You know, there there was a really real actual militant class struggle that happened here, you know, like in in this land, in this country, um, you know, the capitalist elite versus, you know, the freeholders, the revolutionary abolitionists, the Union Army, the general strike of slaves. Um, and I think that trying to, you know, rewrite that history is, you know, just to get away from, you know, what they were fighting for as valuable and things that we should be fighting for today, which is not true. <laughs> I think that, you know, their their goals that, you know, we still have um, and that we still want to focus on, you know, com complete reconstruction, <laughs> make it happen. Now we get into the part of the episode where I start to bring up some issues that I have. And this is from, you know, not being a mug member, not being a neo cout, whether that's a slur or not, but or not being a Mike McNairite, right? Although I am very intrigued by the project. As I see it, you know, uh, one of the dangers of a project that operates on the terrain of bourgeois politics, even those that wish to realize its unrealized promise, uh, is that economic class struggle by workers uh, takes a subordinate role to political struggle by citizens, right? Of course, this is a distinction that bourgeois revolutions throw up, um, is this distinction between citizen and worker or citizen as, and consumer. Uh, what do you see as the relationship in your envisioned movement between workers at the point of production and citizens fighting for a new constitution? So, yeah, I think that's where the merger formula comes in. You know, you have, you know, the intellectuals, the theoreticians, and then you have the workers. And I think what you see in a lot of past revolutions is that the intellectual class or the intellectual form really, you know, kind of distrusted the workers and being able to think for themselves, advocate for themselves. You know, they just kind of saw them as stupid and condescended to them, kind of give them a pat on the head, you know, kind of pitied them. Um, and then you have the workers who obviously distrusted the bourgeois intellectuals as not mm. having their best interests in heart, not really understanding them or their motives or their goals, not really respecting their autonomy and just kind of having their pie in the sky utopian vision of how, you know, revolution was to be achieved. 
So, you know, we see that there needs to be a merger between, you know, the workers and then like the the political element, you know, the theoretical element. Um, we need to meld them together into a mass party so that they can work together. Um, you know, we need to provide a base of support. Um, the workers need to be, you know, the mass base for socialism. Obviously, they need to be like guiding and leading the party. Um, the intellectual class needs to like back them up and, you know, help them find access to educational materials, help them, you know, strengthen their understanding, you know, but they need to be like working together. Just the distinction of these two parties is kind of the problem. We need to bring them together. Um, but but recognize their difference and not say not have like a tyranny of structurelessness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Kotsky has his like his concentric circles, um, and we think that that's um, a really uh, we think that that's uh, a really great way to understand um, you know how we can you know structure. Um, in our minds, um, how kind of information and praxis can work together. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but no, I'm not. Please tell me about circles. Are they like the circles of hell? How many are there? Are there seven? I know that I think there's seven <laughs> circles of hell, right? I guess uh, like yeah. the, the chief bureaucrats in the center, or is that the working class? I don't know. Who's the devil in this? Okay. <laughs> Who's the devil in this? Well, of course, that would be the capitalist class. Oh, okay, good. I guess for for my my take on this entire thing, and maybe this makes me maybe more of a Leninist than people might imagine, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. From what I've read, like all of the sort of history and theory stuff that I've read, and I'm thinking specifically of political Marxism. Uh, especially Ellen Woods and uh, Brenner and their work on the transition. Um, what's clear is that capitalism, as we talked about, um, creates this distinction between the citizen and the worker. It creates this distinction between the political and the economic. And if there's one uh, bright example of what we've seen in world history of the working classes en masse and democratically overcoming that distinction between the economic and the political collapsing the two uh, into one form that could supersede it. For me, that would have been the councils, uh, the Soviets, which first arrived in 1905 and then spectacularly burst into world history in uh, 1917. Uh, it seems as though um, you go a different way with that. You think that, um, that the political struggle for democracy um, is... Uh, or I guess like the workers movement at the point of production is subordinated to the party. Is that correct? And that the struggle for socialism then is about the, is about law giving essentially and the creation of a new political order, which then um, works to what's th under the dictatorship of the workers to slowly um, destroy the disconnect between the political and the economic to overcome capitalist social relations. Tell me, tell me how this works, Isaac. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question and that's a great way of framing it. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if I would, I don't know if we'd like frame it as like 
the the order is like law giving i think an important part of like republicanism uh comes down to like the like the um forms the movements themselves take and the like being able to kind of uh, like democracy within the um democracy within the movements as, as well and i think that's that's really important so it, i think the kind of like you know creating the like law giving to like create the working class you want to see in the world is is i think not I think not exactly kind of how how we'd be like framing it. Um, I do think like there's I think it's um, I think it is important to um, to think I wouldn't frame it as like um, like subordinating the point of production, but I think just like you know I'm like I'm I'm in favor of I'm I'm not an, I'm not um, an economist right Econ- economistic uh, mm-hmm. I'm not in favor of that kind of struggle. I think it is important to like I think it's important to be engaging in that struggle but engaging it in a way where you are like linking where you are where you're not like kind of viewing that struggle as separate from political struggle um that's how i would frame it and i think that like comes down to like back again like how do you do politics why it's important to bring up democracy within these struggles and why why it's important to be bringing up democracy while you know i'm a rank and file public sector worker why is it important that I, i bring up um democracy when I'm like, you know, fighting in a kind of like union reform thing, I think it's important to to connect these struggles to other working class struggles, and I think that's a I think by bringing in the, the you know, the the framing always like sneaks in there when you say like bringing in the political or whatever. And yeah. I don't have a good way yet of like how to talk about this without kind of you know turning you know once again creating this division between political and economic. But I do think it's like I I just think you have to like be um, uh, uh, bringing bringing in this broader vision um, when you're talking about when you're engaged in these struggles. And I think that's how you create that like insurgent universalism. That's that's really important um, to building uh, big working class movements. Mm. And I think it it's it's kind of like the mind body question, like mm. like the mind and body are distinct, but ultimately connected. You know, we need to take you know, socialist concepts and a socialist understanding of class struggle, how it operates, how it moves, and implant it into the consciousness of the workers' movement. But that workers' movement is going to be like the body or the base Mm. of the movement, you know, and it's going to ultimately like support it and make it move. But, um, you know, I think it's also clear, like, I'm a working class person, um, a lot of MUG members are working class. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in the heart of the Midwest and, um, you know, almost everyone I know is working class, my friends, my family. Um, but most of them, because they weren't really taught the history of class struggle, they don't really understand, um, you know, how how class struggle operates and why they don't understand how capitalism really works they're very you know absorbed in capitalist ideology they don't understand what's really going on and so there does need to be like that intervention you know that mind intervention to help guide them help them understand what's happening um give them the tools that they need so you know it's it's not saying that like workers can't think for themselves or they're incapable of imagining socialism for themselves, you know, but I think it's also understanding that because of ideology, capitalist ideology and how it's upheld and, you know, 
enforced at every level, you know, including mm-hmm. just, you know, basic public education, um, you know, there does need to be, you know, kind of an intervention into that. But it's not to say that, you know, the two were totally separate. Um, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I think where I'm coming from is that, uh, of course, and I know you know this, but capitalist ideas, um, uh, capitalists like inculcation of values and um, ca- and the practice of capitalism um, isn't only something that's instantiated day in and day out, but it's also something that's resisted day in and day out, uh, sometimes, oftentimes in very small things, but sometimes quite heroically and dramatically. Of course, we've got 340,000 UPS workers potentially going out on strike. Um, coming up and something of a strike wave uh, over the last uh, couple of years or so. And so for me and where I perhaps differ from Mug when it comes politically, um, I I understand and I actually appreciate a lot of what you talk about with like this, the, the form, the democratic form that a, a party is going to have to take and the integration of uh, minimal demands with the sort of maximum program of of communism. What I what I think is lacking, and not just lacking with your ideas and your practice, but I think lacking by and large on what passes for the left right now, is an understanding that in order to have like an army, you have to have troops, and that um, what is viewed by so many as mere economistic struggles. Um, happening in workplaces all over the place in industrial sectors, uh, things that are spanning the globe right now, uh, often get set second shrift to coming up with the best organizational forms that people can think of or hewing to the best Marxist traditions that people can excavate and bring out. And so I wonder if maybe for me, um, the project lacks a little bit of investment in um, in the actual day to day class struggle and the formation of like a concerted and militant working class movement uh, that can be part and parcel of this larger sort of Republican overcoming. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's a great question. I what my day to day like organizational work right is tenant organizing, creating like tenant unions in uh, across neighborhoods in, in, in Brooklyn and, and across um, New York City in general, um, and also doing some organizing in my workplace, um, which maybe I'll, I'll keep the pin on for, for security's sake. Yeah, uh, please, by all means, do not dox yourself as a <laughs> as an organizer at work. <laughs> but yeah, the bosses I mean, are listening to the Antifada. We know that, folks. No. I mean, it is Brooklyn. You never know, right? But yeah, yeah um, you know, like, where's I go on my train of thought? Yeah, the I the basic idea that you have there of like workers can resist workers can think is really important and i think you need spaces to think in and spaces to talk about that it's a big issue let's say in my workplace broadly speaking is that uh we're we're siloed off right like um i might have a fight with a supervisor and win something in this office but then you know my friends who work out in the um in the other like station somewhere else they don't hear anything about it and don't know what don't know like how that fight happened, don't know what you can learn. It's important to have these spaces in which you can think and learn from each other. And I think that's a big part of organizing. It's a big part of tenant organizing. It's just the basic idea. 
you're not alone. Everyone in Brooklyn kind of thinks like, you know, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people have these ideas of like, well, is it worth it? Is it is it worth taking on my landlord in this? Is it like, is this, maybe this is normal. I've lived in worse places. I can, it's okay. They don't talk to the person literally across the hall who's like, yeah, I was on rent strike for three months and I got all of this fixed. It's really important to like have those spaces where you can think and, and act together. I think that's like, I mean, Marx has this great idea of like workers inquiry where he created this uh, for like 180, it was way too many questions, 180 questions. I don't think anyone filled it out. But the idea was like, you can like, just by like engaging these struggles and you're sending it to like, um, backstory people who don't usually know, you're sending it to socialist militants at part of this French socialist party at the time who were like in the workplace and was like, okay, like what are you observing? What are you seeing? But he was using that and the idea was to use this data that he's getting and data that you're producing from like kind of everyday workplace struggle in order to write a political program. He was writing it in order to put out this um, inquiry in order to write out program i'm a big fan like you know our clr james and that tradition is it's like on my on my sleeve if, if you can't tell throughout this interview but they totally missed that and they totally missed this kind of idea of like okay like this this knowledge is is um uh, um being used to make make something and being used to like kind of uh, make these organizational spaces i think at the heart like they were st i think it's that technique has mostly been used in these kind of in order to like produce propagandistic work or make propaganda circles, I think was the best they kind of came up with. But I think it can really be used to like create like a deep in uh, working class struggle. This was something like Taylor James's followers in um, in the Caribbean and in, in Britain actually did very successfully. They kind of were thinking about um, what is the actual struggle that capitalist ideology is hiding from view. You're not reading about workplace struggle in the New York Times that often, right? right. Um, but we're able to like kind of learn lessons from it and use it to like deepen our organizations. But we have to connect this. We have to connect these struggles to um, other struggles happening. It's not just in the workplace. It's it's tenant struggles absolutely connected to it. But it's not just in the in housing. So, struggles so is MUG a provisional party? Like, are no. you working towards building? You're not. You're uh Yes, it's the party. DSA is the party. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and so, but the party when. Uh, when realized would be that which has the integrative function of various different class struggles. Personally, I feel more and more like I'm part of like another American tradition, which is like De Leonism, like understanding like the uh, industrial, uh, the industrial union and the party as sort of inherently linked. But then again, just as you know, the real historical fruits of uh, Kautskyism was, of course, uh, German working class entry into the uh, First World War, so too was that sort of structural form, I suppose, becoming the Labour Party in the UK, and we've all seen where that went. So there's, it's pretty easy to pick up like old forms and, and run with them, um, but of course there's like the wreckage of the 19th and 20th century that we have to deal with. Uh, Aaliyah, are you back? We lost you for a little bit. Am I'm so sorry about that. No, no. Internet happens to the best of us. I guess. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. We have to have a, a write a strongly, strongly worded letter to my provider. Apparently, they need to nationalize the internet of South Dakota. Absolutely. <laughs> there's a little. There's a little demand for you. Uh, as we as we kind of work our way out of the episode, 
I guess I've I've posed some questions which you don't have to have answers to because it sounds to me like you're still in the sort of the agitational phase of this project. Where do you see Mug going? Like where does the this this Republican radical Republicanism? Where does Mike McNair take you? Where does Neo Kautskyism take you? What's what's your next steps here? And and how do you imagine uh, you and by extension we could win? Well, right now, you know, as you know, we are operating within the DSA, which was, you know, a strategic choice. It's the largest organization of self-described socialists in the country. Um, We are moving into the 2023 convention. And at this point, we are really pushing the partyist line at convention. We want the DSA to be converted into a mass socialist workers party. And that's really our goal right now is to, you know, take DSA with with its organization, you know, of people, its resources, you know, its institutions and transform it into like a genuine third party that is independent from the Democratic Party, obviously independent from the Republican Party. It is independent from capitalist class interests and that's really our goal right now. Um, and we're hoping we're hoping to achieve it. And then after that, you know, new goals. Mm. Isaac, where's the road yeah. take taken? Yeah, just Go making on. an alternative political culture. I mean, at least immediately in tenant organizing, let's make it like expand this vision of what it means to be a tenant. What it means to be a tenant is I'm always complaining to my, I'm always complaining, right? That's, that's what it means to be a tenant is I'm actually talking to my neighbors and, and trying to fight back against gentrification. So expand, that's an alternative political culture. And I'm talking about that in the context of tenant organizing, but I think it's really important. Like when I think about a party, I think about building a mass alternative political culture. That's something that like, I think all great social movements have involved real, like, like a, like a deep political culture and where you're, uh, you can play like a democratic role in this, in building in, in, in this culture and thinking, and, and people on a very everyday basis have this idea of how I can do politics in my life, in my workplace, et cetera. So I think that's really important. That's, that's my goal, you know, in, in the, in the U S and in mug is, is, and in DSA, right? And I would say to like everyone listening, like, I mean, absolutely, like join DSA, join, um, you know, join this organization and fight for a vision of an alternative political culture in the US. I think that's really, that is like the number one task for communists right now. Unless, you know, we'd be remiss here, you know, we put a pin in internationalism before I made the quip recently that if the American experiment has any juice left in it, uh, we may be able to uh, democratically dismantle this cursed capitalist empire that we have, this globe-spanning violent empire that, in some senses, you could separate from the original sort of intents of the constitutional order we have, but in other ways is very, very much implicated uh, within it. Uh, you know, Western expansion and the slave power, of course, being there at the very birth of this whole thing. So how do you imagine then uh, with this video? vision uh a confronting american empire at home and b uh combining forces with movements uh through the rest of the capitalist world yeah i mean i think that's absolutely our goal i think we recognize our position as being kind of you know in within the heart of the imperialist core and we think that you know you know building um 
a socialist party that has genuine political power here, you know, and fighting for socialism here at home, like that is going to destabilize the, you know, entire global imperial structure, you know, we're at the heart of it. And if it, you know, if it starts to combust, you know, in the engine, like the whole vehicle is just not, not going to work. Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of is why, you know, our focus on American politics, um, not out of any kind of, you know, nationalism, but because it's necessary for an internationalist or orientation, orientation, sorry. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, um, the, um, Funny thing is, it looks like at the end of the day, it's going to end up uh, being the far right that accidentally blows this entire thing up, which I mean, okay, fine. History works in funny ways. It's the, you know, they're going to, the next debt limit, maybe they'll, they'll fly us off the cliff and we'll all have to face conditions that are vastly different. But I think socialist organizing, of course, could maybe even do better under those conditions. But that's another question for another day, and maybe we'll have you guys back on. Thank you so much, Aaliyah. I'm sorry you had uh, internet troubles, but your contributions were great. Isaac, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Any last uh, words, any last thoughts before we exit? Thanks for having us. Join DSA. Fight the Constitution. Demand a new republic. 